happy as to say tremendous to see you all uh, this morning. I understand from the papers that uh, this has been the greatest attendance at Easter services in, in many, many years across churches in Sydney and Australia, and uh, it's been our own experience so far. And uh, what an eight o'clock crowd. Look at you all. Uh, fantastic. And welcome to those viewing online as well, even from the States. Hi, Bob. Uh, <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for Easter. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the power of his death and of his resurrection. We pray, please, that you will come to grips with it. Uh, please teach us and mould us and shape us as we engage with your word. Amen. Well, who's crazier? Uh, the person who believes strange things without any evidence or the person who refuses to believe something when the evidence is in. Which one's crazier, do you reckon? Uh, you might think of people in both of those camps all around a whole range of issues. Uh, both of them have their own brand of insanity, don't they? Uh, I think it's an appropriate question to think about on this wonderful occasion as we celebrate that Jesus is alive, no longer dead, risen from the grave. Uh, to many, that's an outrageous claim and that people who believe it are either easily led, the kind of people who, when uh, you tell them that they've taken the word gullible out of the dictionary, which they have, you know they did that last year, you know, that they believe you. Uh, or worse, uh, they've got a screw loose, a kangaroo loose in the top paddock. You know, they're as bad as a cut snake, which is exactly what Festus accuses Paul of in our passage today. Paul has just explained that, he's, uh, that Jesus is alive. He's talked about how he met this dead man, come back uh, alive again. He's talked with him and, and he's talked about all the incredible implications of that being true and how it changed him. And uh, he's doing this in court in front of three judges and one of the judges will stand up in the middle of his defence and say, you're out of your mind, Paul. <laughs> Your great learning has driven you insane. And there are many vocal people in our community who would agree with that assessment that if you genuinely believe, like we've just said we believe, in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that uh, you're bonkers. You need to go to a special place with nice people in white coats. But then Christians would say the same the other way around, that it's insanity not to believe that there's overwhelming evidence that it's in and that Paul, who's being tried here, had very good reasons to believe what he had come to believe and we do too. And that the real insanity is to disbelieve that Jesus is alive again and all that that implies. So who's truly sane and who's truly insane? Is it the one who believes it, puts their hope in Jesus or the one who doesn't. Well, it all depends, doesn't it, on the evidence. And, and just because something hasn't happened before doesn't mean that the first time it does has to be a mistake that everyone's gone a bit nuts. In the late 1800s, a clergyman by the name of Bishop Wright thought that it was impossible for man to fly. Flight, he said, was reserved for the angels. On December 17, 1903, his eldest son, Wilbur, 
took his place at the controls of the first ever powered aeroplane. <laughs> and for 12 seconds and 30 metres, the Kitty Hawk took us into the modern age. And it wasn't just his dad, though. Lots of people thought that he and his brother Orville were loonies back then in 1903, but today we know them as heroes. And it's been that way down through history. Many people who were thought mad by their contemporaries have been proven, proven to be totally sane. Now, the situation in our passage is that the Apostle Paul, the great Christian missionary to Europe, has been locked up in jail. He's been in a cell for two years now in the city of Caesarea, a fortified Roman city on the coast of Israel, on the Mediterranean. Uh, he'd been arrested with no charge. A uh, very strange way to deal with someone. Uh, he'd been arrested after a riot in Jerusalem, the capital, when crowds of Jews had tried to lynch him. Uh, what was the lynching about? Well, absolutely nothing that anyone can put their finger on. He's just, we don't like him. <laughs> um, so he's been languishing in jail for two years now with no charge. Uh, the previous governor, a man named Felix, uh, was hoping that Paul would just bribe him and he could just let him go. And for two years he's thinking, show me the money. All right, he's doing a Tom Cruise. Yeah, show me the money. Uh, and uh, he never got it. And uh, Felix has been replaced by a new governor. And this new guy uh, wants to clear up all of Felix's messes and loose ends which means immediate action in Paul's court case. And so chapter 26, which we just read, is, is the trial. And it's an orchestrated event from beginning to end with three judges sitting on the bench in front of a great crowd and one man in change. And look at the characters that are there. There's Porcius Festus. He's the successor to Felix. Uh, he's the governor of Judea. He's a Roman sent from Rome to take care of the mess. And when Festus took over, matters in Israel were in such a bad shape, he was only there for three days before he went down to Jerusalem to calm the tensions. And when he was down there, the authorities, amongst other things, the Jewish authorities, urged him to bring this guy Paul down, who's in jail over in that other city, uh, bring him down for a show trial. But secretly, they planned to ambush the convoy and murder him on the way. But if that didn't work, they'd have a kangaroo court and have him convicted and executed for, I don't know, profaning the temple. Let's make something up. Well, Paul got wind of the plot, and so when Festus broached the idea with Paul, Paul said, there's no way I want to trial interest. I'm going to appeal to Caesar himself. He's a Roman citizen. He had the right to do that. He wasn't going to have anything else but the top man himself in Rome. Now, that put Festus in a very, very difficult situation because he had to send Paul on to Caesar, but he had no idea what to write. There was no formal charges. No one had ever laid them, and so he was stuck. I've got to write a letter to the, to the emperor of the world explaining why he needs to hear this guy, but I don't know. So there's Agrippa and Bernice as well, as unsavoury a couple as you could imagine. They're the other two judges on the bench. Uh, King Herod Agrippa II was the latest and the last of the Herod dynasty, a family of Jewish puppet kings who were ruling on Rome's behalf in Israel. You might remember some of the other Herods. His great-grandfather, Herod the Great, was the one who'd murdered all the babies uh, because some foreign astrologers had turned up and said, well, we saw a star 
which means a king's been born and so he just had all the babies killed. Uh, Madman. Now, his great uncle, another Herod, was the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. Uh, his own father, Herod Agrippa I, had ordered the apostle James beheaded. And the Herods were a pretty rotten bunch. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, well, Agrippa II wasn't shaping up any better. And, and he was currently hooked up with this, this woman, Bernice, who was also there as the third judge that day. Uh, Bernice, who he's living with, uh, happens to be his younger sister. Uh, she'd been engaged to a man named Marcus, a nephew of a famous Greek philosopher, but she ditched him and married her uncle instead, another Herod, but he died and so now she's living in incest with her brother. Uh, in fact, she was so outrageous that later when she became the lover of Tiberius Caesar in Rome, he dismissed her and sent her back to the colonies because the pagans were so outraged by her immorality. It, it's more sordid than a TV soap, right? This is yeah, ah, history, you've got to love it. Uh, and to make things even more outrageous, Agrippa was considered by Rome to be the expert on Jewish affairs. He was made the curator of the temple and he could appoint or depose the high priests as he wished. He had control of the temple treasury. And when he and his concubine sister Bernice came to visit, it was just what Festus wanted because now he could listen to Agrippa's advice and have something to write to Caesar. And so it was a great thing for him when Agrippa and Bernice showed up and so chapter 25, just before our reading in verse 23, describes the, the staging of the event. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. You can imagine it, can't you? The, uh, the fanfare is King Agrippa and Bernice entering their royal rows, processing then. Festus in his judge's gear. Behind them are the Chiliarchs, the leaders of a thousand, the centurions, the legionnaires, the politicians, trumpets blaring. The Romans had it all staged with great pomp. And then in is dragged this little prisoner in chains, Paul, in his prison gear, brought in and shoved down in front of them all. Uh, the whole situation is meant to intimidate. <clears throat> and I reckon if any one of us were there that day in Paul's position, we'd be shaking in our boots. If it was us, I, I would be. But Paul wasn't intimidated in the least. This didn't scare him. In fact, as the trial goes on, Paul is going to rise up over these lords and kings. He's the giant of the day. And it looks like they're the captives and not him as he ends up asking them while he's on trial to become Christians. That's a, a pretty bold move. Um, well, let's get to it. The trial begins and Paul speaks of his credentials. Verse 1, then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defence. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defence against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with the Jewish customs and controversies, therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I've lived since I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country, because he was born up near Turkey, uh, and also in Jerusalem. They've known me for a long time and can testify, if they're willing, 
that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. Now, you might remember the Pharisees. Uh, they were kind of Jesus' arch enemies all through his life, always trying to get him. But they were the, the religious right. They were the upstanding citizens. They were the, the moral high ground people. And Agrippa, you're a Jew. You know the sects. You know the groups. You know my cues as all know. I, I was a Pharisee. In fact, I was a leading Pharisee down here. So why am I on trial? Well, here's why. Verse 6, And now it's because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I'm on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. It's weird because they share the same hope. But why should any of you consider incredible that God raises the dead? All right, why is it amazing to any of you that God should raise Jesus again? I'm on trial because of what God has promised in the Old Testament, that there's life beyond the grave. I'm here because it's true. And what's more, Agrippa, you know it's true as well. And Agrippa, as a Jewish monarch, would well know it. The Old Testament is full of promises from God that there's life beyond the grave. He'd be keenly aware of God's promise in Isaiah 53, which was our other reading, that a man one day would come to die for the sins of the world who would then be raised from the dead. That's the end of Isaiah 53. He'd know God's promise to raise the dry bones back to life in Ezekiel 37. He'd know God's promise of judgment day in Daniel 12, where all who sleep in the dust of death will rise again and stand before God to receive their dues and either go to everlasting life with God in joy or go to everlasting contempt and misery. And so Paul lays it down to him. Agrippa, you know it. And Bernice, you know it too. And Festus, even you Romans should have an inkling of that. And my suspicion is that, that most of us today have an inkling that there's more than this life, that there's hope of life beyond the grave. Most Australians do, most people living in this country do. But inklings and suspicion mean very little. You may have an inkling that fairies are real, bully for you. Where's the proof? Where's the evidence? If you just believe on gut feeling, well, maybe it is that you have lost your grip. Just because you want something to be true, just because your family says it's true, just because lots of other people have stood up and said something's true, doesn't make it true, where's the evidence? Well, Paul's got very good evidence because something happened to him that meant he could no longer go on hating Christianity, which he had done with an absolute passion. See, what was Paul like as a Pharisee? The Pharisees hated Jesus and then they hated Jesus' followers later. What he'd been up to as a Pharisee, he tried to wipe out Christianity. That was his job. They'd been employed to do it, just as his accusers were now trying to do to him. Verse 9, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that's just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many times I went from synagogue 
to another to have them punished and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. And if you read back through the book of Acts, which is a great read, um, you can see it was an obsession as he has Christians arrested left, right and centre. He busts down their doors and, and goes in with the guards and has them dragged out onto the streets. His he's, cronies are there and he's holding their coats while <coughs> they're being stoned to death at his order. Um, he's travelling internationally to destroy the movement. But on one of these forays against Christians, something happened, something unexpected, something which changed everything. Verse 12, on one of these journeys I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, I was on the road. I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And then I asked, who are you, Lord? And I bet he was surprised by the answer. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Well, that's what happened to Paul. And that's how he went from being a desperate enemy of Christianity to a full-blown convert. He met Jesus, who he was certain was dead. Jesus, who he and his buddies had killed as an evil imposter, as a liar. They'd executed him for his crimes. But when Paul met Jesus risen again, bodily alive after being dead, in kingly glory and splendor, he was overwhelmed by it. There, there was no denying the truth. And, and even more amazing to him was the fact that this King Jesus, who'd beaten death, didn't just strike him down. I mean, you go around killing off this king's followers and then the king turns up. Well, what's he going to do? Well, he has mercy on him. Where did that come from? Paul continues. Now, Jesus said, get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant, as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people, from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that it could receive forgiveness of sins and a place amongst those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That's why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I've had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and greater light. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. In other words, life forever with God isn't just something for Jews anymore. It's, it's for everyone. And it all comes through Jesus. Because he suffered. Because he died to pay for us to be right with God. That's what Good Friday was all about. 
and because he's truly alive again, you can know that there is more to come and you can be part of it. Well, it's all too much for Festus. He leaps to his feet in his judge's gear. I wonder if his wig flew off. You know, <laughs> his spit's coming out. He couldn't contain himself. He, You've got to screw loose. You're, you're, you're off your rocker. <laughs> you're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning has, has driven you insane. Only a nutbag would believe that stuff. Dead men living, bright lights, voices from the other side, people dying, defending it. A hope for Jews and Gentiles of life beyond the grave, resurrection as the thing that God has been planning all along. Festus couldn't handle it anymore. Paul, you're insane. What a moment. It's one of those dramatic courtroom moments that you see, you know, like Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth, you know, and everyone gasps. It's, it's one of those moments, isn't it, kind of thing. There's lots of great courtroom I reckon this is better. The pressure must have been so intense when the, the judge is screaming at you when you're on trial for your life that you're mad. Everyone holding their breath. I, I, it would make the bravest of us sit back down. But Paul, he's not done. And here's the most unsettling part, I think, of the whole story, because up until now, you might be agreeing with Festus. It all sounds a bit too fantastic to be true. Mad men have imagined they've seen gods all through the ages, but let's ask Agrippa, because it all happened under his family's jurisdiction. He's been around the whole time. He'd know why great-granddad had all those babies murdered because another king was said to have been born. Why the other one had murdered John the Baptist, the prophet who said that he's here, and so on. I, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king over there is familiar with these things. I'm convinced none of it has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. This is no secret. The evidence is in. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And I reckon that's a clanger to drop if there ever was one. The ultimate mic drop. Boom! <laughs> uh, because it's no longer one man's possible delusions. Agrippa knows there's actually substance to it. And he's on the spot. He's in the spotlight now. He, he knows God's promises. He knows God has spoken clearly about life after death, about a coming Messiah, about judgment, about life with God that can go on and on. He knows that God has given repeated prophets over thousands of years testifying to this stuff. He knows Isaiah 53 like all Jews do. And what's more, Agrippa knows all the facts about Jesus. He's had all the instruments and mechanisms of state reporting to him. He knows all about Jesus' miracles, about his teaching which came with such authority. He knows that the teachers and the priests were all afraid of him. He knows about the demons that were cast out. He knows the claims 
that Jesus, the man his father helped execute, is now bodily alive and now being reported continually around the country by hundreds of different people on many different occasions. People who are now willing to go to their deaths rather than deny it's true. Again and again, people have died rather than deny it. And Agrippa's rattled. He's stunned. Here's the little prisoner in front of him, but it's as if Agrippa's the one on trial. (laughs) The evidence is there, and Agrippa, you know it. But though he was rattled, King Agrippa was too worldly wise to let himself be trapped. And so as a career politician, he knew how to dodge a question. (laughs) Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? Because that's what Paul's trying to do, isn't it? Are you kidding, Paul? You think I'm going to become a Christian after just one speech from my prisoner? (laughs) You, you can tell he's been assaulted by the truth and he's totally aware of the implications. He can do the maths. If Jesus really is alive again, reigning in heavenly splendor, there's nothing saner than to give yourself to him. Follow him and trust everything he says. That's what everyone should absolutely do if it's all true. Agrippa knows it. Paul knows it. And I suspect you know it too. So who's insane? Who is truly mad? I submit to you that the true crazy in the story is Agrippa. He knew what he was hearing was all true, but he could not bring himself to admit it in front of the powerful crowd he was there to impress. He couldn't admit it in front of his sister who he shacked up with. He should have repented of his sins there and then and become a Christian on the spot. But he was too gutless, too invested in himself, too worried about what he might lose if he admitted there was another king more powerful than himself who can defeat death. Someone who rules even life and death. Paul's not out of his mind. He is not the crazy because when you know that Jesus is alive and well, that he's the one all of God's promises hinge on, that he's the maker and the judge, he's also the saviour, then it's not madness. It is absolute, crystal clear, unreserved sanity to trust him and become one of his followers. And the trial finishes with one of the most beautiful and powerful pictures of Paul, Verse 29, Paul replied, short time all long, I pray God that not only you but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. I don't want you to become, I want everyone in court to become a Christian. (laughs) Uh, What a thing to say. Uh, uh, A mere speck of a man in chains before this throng of the powerful in their purple and scarlet with their guards and lackeys. You, You think you can persuade me to become a Christian? You're dead right, I do. (laughs) Sort it out. (laughs) And we're left with this horrifying silence from Agrippa at the end of the passage. All he can do is get out of there as quickly as possible rather than sorting it out with Jesus. Let me wrap up with just a couple of lessons from this dramatic moment. The first one's this. 
if you've been with us for the last few years, you know what it is. God can save anyone. Paul reflected many times on the day that he met Jesus. Uh, three times it's recounted in the book of Acts. This is the third time. Uh, he reflected again through his letters. He's one of the most remarkable. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. We've seen a lot of bad guys become believers over this last few months. You might want to go back and watch some of the church services. They're all on YouTube. On the outside, Paul looked the part of the religious right, upstanding citizen, all-round hero and good guy, but God saw right through him. And when he met Jesus in resurrected glory, he came to understand the depths of his sin within and came to an end of himself. And he received mercy, forgiveness, life. It does not matter. If Paul can be saved, you can be saved. The gospel of Christ's death for sin on Good Friday, his resurrection on Easter Sunday is good news for everyone. But there's a second lesson here too. The truth of the gospel hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. Again, Paul reflecting his life in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the, the evidence and how he was the last one to come to Christ and see, see him in risen glory and that Christianity stands on falls on the facts of history. Christianity isn't just true for some people but not for others. It's, it's not based on conjecture. It's not about feelings. It's not about family history. It's not based on mythology. It's based on evidence. And the evidence is overwhelming. Festus, he didn't know the facts. He'd only just arrived in the country. He hadn't heard any of this stuff. So he thought it was all nonsense, crazy talk. But Agrippa, he knew better. Our society likes to pretend that the issues it has with Christianity are academic ones. Not enough proof, not enough evidence. It's just not true. The problem isn't academic. The problem is hard hearts that don't want it to be true because it's too confronting. And so the final lesson to us this Easter Sunday is don't be like a gripper and just walk away without embracing Jesus. Don't let the truth of the gospel just wash over you. If you know it's true, then come and receive the mercy that Jesus offers. Let him give you new life. Let him wash away your sins and give you a new start with God. You don't deserve it. No one does. But he's offering it. And at this very moment, Jesus is standing there with an offer open. The offer of verse 18. That you can turn from darkness to light. From the power of Satan to God. He can receive forgiveness of sins and a place amongst those who are sanctified by faith in him. That's what Jesus is offering. He has paid for it all. Right? You don't have to pay, he's done it. He's alive, he is reigning as the king and his offer still stands. But it will not stand forever. And so the time to sort it out is now. Don't do an Agrippa and just walk away. And my prayer with Paul, that is, that in whether short time or long, that all of you who are listening to me today may become what I am, 
a new person truly alive because of Jesus sorted out within. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way that you confronted Paul and brought him to his knees and brought him to the truth that Jesus is alive. We thank you for the, the incredible mercy and blessing that you gave this man who was destroying your people and you saved him. And thank you that you are saving anyone who comes to know the truth. And so we pray this Easter we might embrace the risen King, the Lord Jesus, the one who has died for our sins, who's alive again, that we might gladly, joyfully follow him every day of our lives, knowing the peace that he's offered with you, knowing the joy that it is to be forgiven and the hope that we have of life with you. And we pray that that would transform every one of our days like it did for Paul. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.